Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 1. The hymn that we sang at the end of the Lord's Supper was called Lead Me to Calvary. And the final verse of that hymn says this, May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for Thee, even Thy cup of grief to share. Thou hast borne all for me. Even Thy cup of grief to share. It's a great hymn and it brings out something that's very true and very important. The early Christians and Christians really down through the ages, including of course the Christians at Philippi who are the recipients of this letter that we've been studying a little bit, and I don't know how much longer we're going to remain in Philippians, but, but maybe we want to finish chapter 1 here today. They have understood, and it's revealed very clearly throughout the pages of the Bible, that their purpose here together on earth was the cause of the gospel of Jesus. They have understood that the reason that they exist as a church, the reason that the Lord leads them here, the reason, the purpose for us to be here is to represent the Lord and to preach His gospel to the lost. They also, hand in hand with all of that, have understood very clearly that that's going to get them in trouble from time to time with the world around them. Because even in this free and relatively safe society that we live in, miles and years removed from where the Philippians were, even here we know that preaching this beautiful, wonderful message of love and grace and mercy and God's gift is not always very politely received, let's say. And so we also should be convinced of those two very important facts. Number one, our mission here as Christians is to preach the gospel among the lost. Yes, indeed. And the world is not necessarily going to applaud us when we do. That's putting it very mildly. As the hymn writer said again, May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for Thee, even Thy cup of grief to share. Why? Because He, Thou, hast borne all for me. Very good thought and very good sentiment that fits very well into what it says in these last few verses of Philippians chapter 1. 
May I say to you before I pray that it is important whenever you read one of these precious God-breathed letters in the New Testament that you read them through the eyes of someone who would have been one of the original recipients of it. That is to say, to contextualize it historically and in reality. When he writes to the Philippian church, he's writing to people who are fully convinced of the fact that their purpose on earth is to share the gospel and that they know that like their beloved Apostle Paul himself, they may suffer for it. Whenever you read one of these letters, read it through that lens in your mind and in your heart. Let us pray. And then I'll read, starting in verse 27, just the last few verses of Philippians 1. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, for the gospel of Christ, for this message. This message is our only hope. It sounds so cliche to say it, especially in church, but it's true, most holy Lord. We know how the world is. And we ourselves, in our past, were full embracers of that world. We know that you have redeemed us. We know the price that was paid. Like the, the man in John chapter 9 who said, I was blind and now I see. We too can say, I know what I was and now I know what I am because of Christ. And so we truly can say that this gospel is the most precious and most important thing in the whole world. Lord, as we read these words, just a short few words today, and think about these things, I pray, Lord God, that you would impress upon each one of us the importance of embracing the gospel mission as our own. And then understanding that that's not a call to necessarily a comfortable mission, but one, Lord God, that may arile persecution and trials in our lives. But help us to recognize that for what it is as your word, these precious words, present to us here today. Help us to embrace it for our lives and be diligent in walking as we ought. Thank you for all of my brothers and sisters who are here. And my prayer is that, Lord, furthermore, if there's anyone who's listening to this who themselves has not become my brother and my sister and the brothers and sisters of all those who have faith in this place, may today be the day that you bring them, Lord, to saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as they hear these words. I ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 1, verse 27 says this, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you 
it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake may I be willing Lord to bear daily my cross for thee even thy cup of grief to share to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me so we saw in the beginning of this chapter how Paul rejoiced over the people of this church because he was able to joyfully tell them that the trials and the suffering that he was going through was for the furtherance of the gospel. Right? And he was able to rejoice and thank God daily in prayer for the fellowship of these people in the gospel. Now, as he comes to the end of this, he talks about something called the faith of the gospel. We know what the gospel is. We know that the gospel is the most precious and important thing to us. But now what Paul talks about here, when he talks about the faith of the gospel, is he kind of elevates the gospel, if it's possible to do that, from simply a message that is preached to a cause. A cause. He does not in this passage simply talk about striving together for the gospel, but he talks about striving together for the faith of the gospel. See, because when the gospel is preached and somebody believes and they're reconciled to God, now they have begun a walk by faith that involves serving God. And that's why this passage, this last paragraph, starts with a word about our conduct. Because we aren't just saved by faith and then nothing else matters in the rest of our lives here. Certainly before God, all that matters is that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and that you and I believe, right? But as we live out the rest of our lives here, there is much more that matters. And that's why the word is given to our conduct. We are described together for this cause, the faith of the gospel even to the extent that it may bring trouble and suffering into our lives. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There is so much that can be said about this. And you have listened to me, most of you, for a long time. And you've heard me preach here. Maybe you've listened to a message of mine online or something like that. And you know that it has always been impressed deeply upon my heart to preach and to preach and to preach and to preach. As Paul told Titus, remind them constantly of these things. To preach and to preach about how our conduct fits in with the, the mission that we have here as Christians. Our conduct is important. Here we are called to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, how you live your life should be consistent. There should be, there should, there should be an integrity 
between the fact that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and how you walk. And the standard for how you walk is the Jesus that you believe in and how He walked as it is presented in His Word. When we're called to make disciples, we are told to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, which speaks to the evangelistic part of disciple-making. Preach the gospel when somebody believes, baptize them, that, that, that symbolic initiation into the faith. But then teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. In other words, teach them to do what Jesus has taught us to do. And Jesus taught both by word and by deed. Jesus taught with eloquent and powerful parables and sermons and discourses, and he taught by the example of his life. And he even teaches through the example of his apostles and the words that they wrote down, and he even teaches us through the words and the instruction that we get in examples in one another's lives to some extent, I believe, as well. Our conduct ought to be framed and shaped by the gospel that we believe. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. That word worthy is a form of the word worship in English. The word worthy, the older English version of the word worship is worship. And the idea of worthiness is that your conduct ought to be an act, a continuous act of worship to God because of the gospel that he has reached you with and saved you with. There is a lot then, as you know, that can be said about this. We could say something about our works. We could say something about our love for one another. We could say something about the grace that we exercise towards one another. We could say something about the way we treat each other, treat people in the world, even treat people who persecute us and hate us, we can say. There are all sorts of things that fall under this gigantic umbrella of conduct worthy of the gospel. But in this passage, there are a few specific things that are mentioned. And so in this passage, we focus on these few things that Paul mentions here. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. Right? So in other words, Paul is saying, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, so when I come and see you, I can see that conduct, or when somebody reports to me about how things are going, I can hear of that conduct. <laughs> Powerful thought to insert there, right? Your conduct is not just seen by people. Your conduct is heard about by people who don't necessarily see it. Fact of life. Convenient or not. Justifiable or not. And sometimes it is and sometimes maybe it's not. But fact of life. How we live is not only seen in the immediate sense by people who are with us and around us, it is heard about in the extended sense by people who talk about it. And Paul says so right here. You let your conduct be worthy of the gospel so I can see that when I'm there, or if I don't come to you, I can hear about it. Right? Be instructed. Be instructed 
But here's, here's chiefly what he's talking about. Look at the words. That you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. There are basically three things in that sentence that are specific elements of our conduct that Paul has in mind. As I said, if you were exhaustively to talk about human conduct, especially of a Christian, there are all sorts of other things written in Scripture that would come into play. But remember, Paul knows that this Philippian church is a pretty well-functioning and healthy church. So there's not a lot of digging at like specific things here and there. He gets into these three things. One of them is their unity. That is their unity of mind and spirit, their unity of purpose. Number two is their fight. That is the striving for the faith of the gospel, the work and the fighting that they do for the faith of the gospel. And then the third thing is this not being terrified by their adversaries. These are the three specific elements of Christian conduct that, that Paul has in mind when he speaks to this church. And I think it's good for us, then, to take a look at all of those things, right? He speaks of here, that when talking about their conduct, which he's either going to see when he comes or he's going to hear about from somebody else. He talks about them standing fast, which means don't move, Right? It doesn't mean to quickly rise out of your seat. That's not what stand fast means. To stand fast means don't move. Anchor yourself in one spot and stay there. And in a spiritual sense, what he's talking about is the work of the gospel. Don't move from the gospel, right? He had to rebuke the Galatian churches for this because the, the Judaizers had come in and they were very specifically preaching that it is not enough to be saved simply to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, you know what? If anybody, I, he says, I marvel that you are so quickly being removed from that gospel to another one if there indeed could even possibly be another one, which there can't. And he says, if anyone comes to you and preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. That's how important standing fast is. They were moving. And so he had to write to them to rebuke that, those churches in Galatia because of that Judaizing that was going on, going on. And they were being moved from the fact that it was God's grace in Christ enough to save someone to you also need to be circumcised and observe the Sabbath and observe the law and basically be converted over to being a Jew. Right? And Paul was like, no, how are you moving to that? No. And so here he writes to them and he says, stand fast. And he specifically speaks of standing fast in their unity. Their unity of spirit. Their unity of thought in their minds. Right? It is very important that Christians be one. In a real spiritual sense, we are. And that has nothing to do with us. God has made us one. We call each other brother and sister for that reason, because we are. We are fellow heirs with Jesus of the kingdom. We are adopted, the spirit of adoption. We are adopted as his sons and daughters. But what he's talking about here 
is living out that spiritual reality. Brothers and sisters, you and I are commanded by God to live out the spiritual reality that we are one. This reads very similarly to the perhaps more elaborate passage that Paul wrote in, in another one of these, uh, these short epistles from jail that he wrote uh, to the Ephesians. Why don't we just go ahead and look there really quick at Ephesians chapter 4. You're no doubt familiar with this, but let's just see it because he kind of explodes this concept of their oneness in a very long and, and, and glorious passage about the playing out of the unity of Christians. He's talking about our conduct. And look at if you want conduct that's worthy of the gospel, which you should, part of that worthy conduct is that we live out and fight to preserve the, the reality of the spiritual unity that we have in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech, which means beg, you to walk worthy, very similar to the verse in Philippians 1 that we just read, talking about their walk, their conduct, Walk worthy of the calling in which you were called with all lowliness, it's like humility, and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, that means working, laboring, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to strive, strive, work for peace among the brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you know that Satan is active and alive and walks around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He is the divider of the brethren. He is the sower of discord. A whisper here, an evil motive there, an evil eye there, and then you have division in the body which becomes a small tumor and grows into a great spiritual disease. We are to fight to, for the reality of the spiritual unity, endeavoring, working to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The peace among brethren, the peace among brethren is that bond that holds us together in Christian love. And when that peace is disturbed and troubled through various means, those are the fingerprints of the devil. And we need to fight and to strive against all of that. Because why? Verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of... Look at all the ones. One hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then he goes on and talks about different gifts that were given for the purpose of edifying the body. He talks about different people who are called to preach and teach for the edifying of the body over in verse 11. Um, culminating in the end of verse 16 perhaps, talking about the body edifying itself, building up itself in love. We are to work and strive for that. Paul says, worthy conduct? Here is conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Do you love the gospel? Do you love the gospel, brethren? Are you grateful for the gospel? Here is how you conduct yourself worthy of that, what you just said. You strive to keep unity and peace among brethren. Listen, listen, ready? Even to your own hurt or inconvenience if necessary because it's so important. Paul says, Paul says, whether I come and see you 
or someone's going to come and tell me about it. What's he say? I want to hear that you stand fast in one spirit and one mind. Look, notice how he uses those words, spirit and mind. Spirit, for lack of a better way of showing it, is like your entire internal attitude. That's your spirit. It's not spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. It's not a reference to God, the Holy Spirit here. You can certainly say something about that we're all in God. We all have the Holy Spirit in us. This is, it's a lowercase s because it's talking about the spirit of man. Our own attitude, our own passions and desires, they ought to all be united. There's only, and there's only one thing that can unite us, and that's the gospel. That is what unites us. All, if all of us together have the same passion and longing for the cause, the ministry, the faith of the gospel, if we all have that, guess what we will be? We will be one, undivided, united in Christ, in one spirit. And then he speaks of one mind, right? A single-mindedness. Now, the spirit describes in a broader general sense, I think, the entire inward attitude, the heart of man. The mind focuses in a more micro way on the thoughts, the understanding, and the truth, right? So one spirit and one mind. Our attitudes and our hearts and our passions are the same, and what we understand is the same as well. That's why this is so important. I shared with the men yesterday from Psalm 119. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on like that. Every Christian should have a daily experience with his or her Bible. A daily, meaningful experience with God as you meet Him when you get alone and you open this book and you consume in your mind the words that are on the pages and in that you commune with God every bit as much as you did when you ate and drank at the table today. If we are all lovers of our Bibles, guess what we will be? One mind. One spirit. One mind. Paul says that's worthy conduct of the gospel. And if I come to you, I want to see it. And if I don't come to you, surely I'm going to hear about it. Right? Second, he talks about striving. I'm not, I'm not by nature a confrontational kind of person. Me. Some of you are. Sorry to tell you that. <laughs> Some of you aren't. Some of you think you are, but you're not. And some of you think you're not, but you are. But all kidding aside, all lightheartedness aside, the word strive means fight. And we are called to confront and fight. Listen, not with flesh and blood. Not with people. We are not called to fight with people in this world. Did you know that? We wrestle not with flesh and blood, Paul said in Ephesians 6, but with principalities. That's a weird word. Principalities. 
principality. Is that the guy that leads the high school over here? The principal, the principal, the principal. No. Principality. It, it, and, and he goes on to elaborate on that. Principality. Powers. Spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Not fighting against things in heaven. But Paul is talking about the fact that there is a realm, a spiritual realm, that we are called to strive together against. And there is only one method by which that is done. That is the work of the gospel. And the work of the gospel involves preaching it, it involves living as a Christian, it involves prayer, praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, that passage in Ephesians 6 goes on to say, as Christians, we are called to strive together for the gospel. Get in the fight. Every day, pray. Pray for your brethren. Pray for spiritual things for your brethren. I want you to pray today that I would have a safe trip to Virginia and back with my son. But I would much rather you pray and also ask you to pray that my heart would be encouraged and that I, would have, that I would have boldness to speak when I have opportunities to speak of Christ. And that I would not allow some of the comforts and pleasures and entertainments of this life so in measure it's nice to relax and enjoy something, I would not allow like the comforts of this life to obscure or cloud or in any way remove my heart or my focus from my mission as a Christian to preach the gospel to people. Pray those things. Pray that God would open my eyes anew to wonderful things from His Word. Pray that God would flood my soul with delight in His Word and delight in His Spirit and delight in His Son, delight in His presence, delight in my eternal future with Him. Pray for spiritual things for one another. Lofty spiritual things because that's reality, right? And you pray for those things for each other. And there are some of these prayers are recorded, you know. I pray for you that God would open the eyes of your heart and, you know, show wonderful things from His law, right? Pray those things for each other. That's how we fight. That's how we fight when we pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, when we're filled with the Spirit and not drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. But... We're, 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 we fight when we pray and we're united with God and with one another and then we go out into our daily lives as his ambassadors representing him with the gospel. That's what Paul says. Whether I come and I see it or I hear about it, I want to hear that you're striving together for the faith of the gospel. And as I said, that phrase, the faith of the gospel, elevates it. You know, that's what I really zoomed in on. Why did he just say gospel? Why did he say the faith of the gospel? Because the gospel produces something. The faith. The faith. Right? I mean, faith in itself, in us, is when we trust in God. But when we speak of the faith, the Christian faith, what are we talking about? We're talking about our entire relationship with God. Right? I am a person of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I walk by faith and not by sight. My faith is a living and active thing. My faith is the thing by which I am connected in constant communion and relationship with my Creator, having been reconciled to Him through the blood of the cross. So he says, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Pray, study the Word, encourage Bless one another. Pray that God would lead you to people. 
carry some gospel literature and invitations to church and stuff like that around in your pocket. Keep it on the tip of your tongue, but keep the literature in your pocket too. It's a little practical thing. I'll tell you a little story. I, I was in my office and I picked up one of these little gospel tracts that I have a few in, in my desk. I have a bunch of them actually. And it's a li- you've seen it. It's a little booklet, a little square about this big. And it says, are you a good person? Right? And then it goes through and it asks questions. Have you ever sinned about, you know, have you ever done this, have you ever done that? And it points out your sin so you can realize you need to be saved by the Lord Jesus, right? But on the cover of this tract, it says, are you a good person? And big, giant white letters is the word good in the middle of it. So I was like, boy, that really jumps off the page. It gets someone's attention. I've given out hundreds of these tracts over the years. But I took a really close look at the cover and just had that thought probably for the first time in years. So I stuck one of them in my wallet. And I went to Wawa, commercial for Wawa. One dollar coffee every day for January. So I went to Wawa to get my dollar coffee, right? And so I'm in Wawa, and uh, because it's dollar coffee month, you know, the coffee island is like crazy, and, and, you know, the girl that's working there is trying frantically to fill everything up. And so I just started, struck up a conversation and said, uh, said, uh, boy, this is, you're probably really busy because you got all this dollar coffee, right? And she said, yes. And she said, but our coffee is good. <laughs> and I had just like moments before been thinking about the fact that this gospel tract and the cover said, good. <laughs> so you know what I did, right? I reached right in my wallet and I pulled the thing out and I said, I want you to look at this. I want you to read at this because you, you, said, you said this coffee's good and here's something that's also really, really good. It'll tell you about the Lord. And listen, we had a nice little, we went on. I told her about the church a little bit. And, and we, had, we had a nice little conversation. But I don't know, it sounds like a stupid, like, goofy little story. And I have hundreds of stupid little goofy little stories like that that I can tell you. But, but that, that's kind of like, you know, it, 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 so, so it's not like a heavy fight, like I'm going out there, ah, 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 ah. You put, but you're out there because you're in contact with people and you get all these little opportunities to just drop a little something, a word, a, a piece of literature, something to make them think that God can take. To, to me, it seemed nothing. To me, it was almost humorous. And you're laughing at it too. And that's fine. But God can do something magnificent and of eternal consequence through the smallest little thing that we do if we do it in faith. If we do it from a spirit that is striving, working, fighting for the cause of the gospel. Paul says, if I come and see you or if I hear about it, this is what I want to see, this is what I want to hear. This is what I want to see. This is what I want to hear in this church. This is what I want for us here. One spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What else? third thing in that sentence was not terrified. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries. It, how many of you have walked with the Lord and served the Lord enough that you have recognized that because of your faith in Christ you have adversaries? If you've never experienced adversarialism from the world, maybe you're not walking close enough with Christ. Maybe you're not dug in deep enough. 
Jesus did not promise this that world the world would love us. He did promise that in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. He does not call us to deliberately go out and be adversarial with the world. No, he actually calls us to be harmless as doves. Sometimes I, I get a little annoyed when I hear of like Christians who are being deliberately like antagonistic with various people or groups in society and like not really talking and representing the way that Jesus would, even if the thing that they're doing may be good. We have to walk as Jesus walked. The thing you are armed with is the gospel of Christ. And it's a sword. It's a dividing thing. You know what? Don't be terrified. Look what he says. Uh, he says, he says, because it, 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 sometimes, you may not think this, but even a big, you know, big dumb looking guy like me can go into like a coffee shop and be terrified of a little girl standing there putting coffee, stacking up coffee cups. Because it's like, I, I, it's not that I'm afraid of her. It's like I'm afraid of looking stupid. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of like, like embarrassing myself or misrepresenting Christ. Or, or maybe she thinks I'm talking to her for some inappropriate reason or something. I get afraid. Yeah, you know, all these, listen, and, and, and she's not like my adversary again, right? We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. It's those thoughts. It's those spirits. It's the spirits. It's all those things that Satan can like, like, like deceive you with that are like the enemy. You know, and you just pray and you press through. But you go out there and you, and you see that we're commanded here, told here, encouraged here, not to be afraid, not to be terrified by your adversaries. Look at this. Which is to them a proof of perdition. Do you know what perdition is? It means destruction. In other words, though, and, and listen, to those, and he has people in view here. But let me explain this, because I just got done telling you that people are not the enemy. And yet here, he talks about people being your adversaries. Listen carefully. He sa- because we're not at war with people. What does he mean then? He says, not in way ter- any terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of destruction. In other words, when you go out and you graciously, humbly, confidently represent Christ with the gospel of Christ, and they can see your, your fearlessness in doing so, it accomplishes two very important things. It proves to them what you're trying to preach to them, which is that they're doomed in their sins. The fact that you have peace and joy, that's what that passage that Peter says when he's talking about always be ready to give them a reason for the hope that is in you, give an answer to them who ask of you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What he's talking about is when you're suffering and you're struggling and you're, and you're persecuted and you're beaten down, you have joy and peace anyway because you walk so closely with God. And when people see that, they will say to you, why? Don't you know how much trouble you're in? Listen. I'm not in any trouble at all. My trouble was taken care of at the cross. I'm in no trouble at all. You're in trouble, friend. Right? And when they see that peace and that joy and that confidence that you have, it's proof to them that what you're saying about God's judgment is true. And it's proof to you, isn't it? Doesn't he say that? It's proof to you of salvation and that from God. It's proof 
that God is saving us. It is proof that God... Listen. Proof of the reality of God is that we walk so closely with Him that He fills us with His Spirit. And when we are living and walking among the people of this world, we are at peace with Him even in the midst of an adversarial relationship with the lost world, which doesn't necessarily appreciate or approve of our methods or our preaching or what it is that we're saying. But proof to them that it's real is the peace that we have even when people hate us. Proof to them that it's real, the warning about God's judgment and then the offer of God's grace and salvation in the Gospel. The proof to them that it's real is that when they hate us, we love them. When they slander us, we offer blessing and prayer for them. See? When they threaten, you're not afraid. The Spirit of the Lord is not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And Paul had to say that to a very afraid, gifted but afraid young man named Timothy. I can tell him that. And in that same passage in 2 Timothy, he tells him, don't be ashamed of the sufferings. Share in them with me what he goes on to say here in verse 29 it's not it's not it's been granted on behalf of christ not just to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake we've been granted granted the privilege of suffering for the sake of the gospel and look at this, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me in other words the the this imprisonment that you hear about that i am in this 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 suffering and, and, and all the trials that you've seen and heard about, it's yours too. That's what he's saying there. That last, Listen, it has not just been granted to you to believe, because believing is a gift from God, right? More proof of it right there. To believe is something that is granted by God. But that's not all he grants. He also grants us the privilege then to suffer for his sake. Because the very conflict that Paul was going through the very imprisonment that he was writing from, that's yours too. That's ours too. But when we endure those things with peace, and see, that's why it's important that we're of one spirit and of one mind and committed to strive together for the gospel. That's why it's important that we have our purpose right. That's why we understand together while we're here, because we can't strengthen each other if we're taking shots at each other, if we're judging each other, if we're ripping each other, if we're tearing each other down, if we're only looking for our own self-interest. We can't possibly have any strength when the real Christianity, where the rubber hits the road, which is when we preach the gospel and we suffer for it. We need to be right there, praying, bearing the burdens together. The same suffering you see in the brother who suffers because he faithfully preaches the gospel of Christ, that's yours too. That's why it's important that we're of one spirit, one mind, striving together, not terrified. Because it's proof to the adversarial world of their destruction and proof to us that we're being saved and that by God himself. Because it's not only granted to us to believe, it's also granted to us to suffer because the conflict we see in those who suffer for the sake of the gospel, that's ours too. That's what he's saying here. You get that? What is the gospel? 
that he's laboring over here and striving for. It's what we, it's what we portrayed at the table over there. Jesus, the Word became flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, came here on account of the fact that God had promised that He would bring salvation to an ultra-rebellious species known as humans. The only thing that God made that you can say was created in His image, male and female, He made them and created them in His own image. Image bearers of God we are. And yet, for centuries have walked in rebellion to that Creator. God sent His Son to become one of us. He was the only one who lived in perfect accordance with His Father's law. And He fulfilled that law. And then when He died, as we portrayed and celebrated today, what He was doing was not just dying some human death at the hand of some really rotten and wicked people, meaning not just them, but us as well, He was actually bearing the judgment against sin on our behalf because our Creator, who we rebelled against, still loves us so. Jesus died for our sins. He loves you. He loves you that much. He died to bear the just penalty for your sin. And on the third day, He conquered death itself by rising from it. He ascended back to heaven. He has commissioned His church and given us His word. And now we preach to you, neither is there salvation in any other. No other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you're here today and you're in Christ, devote yourself, please. Devote yourself to being of worthy conduct. Being of one spirit and one mind with your brethren striving together for the faith of the gospel, not being terrified of those who are adversarial, but being an example to them, loving them, praying for them. And if you're in here today and you're not in Christ or you're not sure about this, receive Him by faith. Humble yourself, acknowledge that you've sinned, turn to Jesus and pray, believing and ask Him to save you. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I can't save myself, but I need you. I, I see this thing that you have done and it is marvelous. It's good. Thank you. Please save me from my sins. Be my Lord and my Savior. Come to me, Lord Jesus. Be like that thief on the cross. Lord, in your kingdom, remember me. He promised that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And he promises you, today he will send his spirit to seal you and your sin will be dealt with forevermore. Come to Jesus. Come. Stand up with me and let's close our service in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice in your table. We rejoice in the privilege of worship and prayer and fellowship. We rejoice in your word. We rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice, 
Lord God, that you've been so good to us, so gracious to us, most holy, Lord God. Thank you so much for this fellowship we've had together today and for this meeting. I pray, Lord God, the words that have been read and spoken would be of spiritual nourishment for every person who hears them, Lord. Take anything stupid that I've said out of the way and let the people go from here today not able to get out of their minds what you have said to us today, Lord God. Help us to respond in humility and obedience to your word. Help us, Lord, to be of good, sweet fellowship with one another. Help us, Lord, to strive to protect love and unity and humility and oneness among Christians, Lord God, that together we may labor for the gospel. Help us, Lord God, whether people see us or hear about us, to know that we are of one mind and one spirit striving together for the faith of the gospel and not terrified of our adversaries, but actually living as a testimony to them of your righteous judgment and your grace upon those who repent and believe. Thank you, Lord, for this time together we've had today. Please bless all of my brothers and sisters, Lord God, as they go from here now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.